Standing Ready, the podcast that gives you an inside look at the untold history of the VA's medical innovations with your hosts, Katie Della Sensory and Sean Spittler. Welcome back to Standing Ready, everybody. Welcome. Sean, were you alive in 1978? I was not. Were you? <laughs> I was, no. no, I was not. But that was the year that Khalil Ahmed started working at the VA. And he is still working there today. Wow. <laughs> so he uh, has had, I think it's safe to say, one of the longest careers uh, in, in, in VA research and somebody that has a wealth of knowledge on cancer treatment. And he's the professor at the medical school at the University of Minnesota. And he's also a senior research career scientist at the Minneapolis VA Medical Center. And so, yeah, this guy goes way back. He's like a, a living history book, which is perfect for what we're doing here. Uh, and which is why for the second time this season, we're experiencing some deja vu. So the first time we had academic affiliations was a follow-up to an episode we did in season one. In our last episode, we talked with Michael Kelly about oncology. And this week we're talking also about oncology with Dr. Khalil Ahmed. Which I think just kind of draws on both of those because, you know, he is representative of this sort of, you know, academic affiliation system. So he is a researcher at the VA Medical Center, but also works in the medical school at the University of Minnesota. And he's also working on some of these oncology issues that Dr. Kelly has been working on. So it's really, I think, a culmination of both of those episodes. And he just has such a you know, long and historic perspective on VA research, that it really is great to talk to him and, and see how things have changed or have not changed since 1978. All right, let's jump in. Dr. Ahmed, welcome to Standing Ready. Yeah, thank you. Could you tell us a bit about what research was like in the 1970s and maybe compare that to how it's different from today? Essentially similar to that being conducted at uh, NIH, you know, it was like considered as an intramural program that you got uh, some funding to get started. And I think, but in 1972 or so, it started to change, you know, it became more grant-oriented program. And it's kind of gotten more and more in that direction. And so, but right now, from my own perspective, it's it's neither a, a fully grant-related system nor a fully uh, intramural system. So uh, kind of a mixture and, uh, you know, has some good aspects, some not so good aspects to it. I think prior to, uh, in the, the initially, a lot of the um, very outstanding work was done in the VA. I mean, you know, the VA can, um, can um, sort of uh, take credit for, Three Nobel Prizes, uh, were the one being the, uh, Dr. Rosalind Yellow, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Andrew Shelley, and then Dr. Fareed Murad. Uh, uh, so these three individuals were did all their work actually, and they and they uh, prior to 70s or early 70s. And I think they had a, a tremendous freedom in wanting to do what they wanted to do. And even uh, like uh, Dr. Andrew Shali, who is still at, uh, located at the uh, VA in, uh, in uh, uh, Florida. Uh, and he, 
he was saying that, oh, you know, he, he was approached by the VA in, in, in Florida to, you know, in, in, in not Florida, but New Orleans to come and set up a lab. He needed a lot of money to, to make a large scale preparation of the hormone that he thought he had discovered. And, uh, you know, right away he got that money. And, uh, you know, like it, it, the amount he mentioned was seemed quite a big amount of money, you know, without actually applying and for, uh, you know, and writing a proper proposal and go through. And he got the money and he purified. And eventually, you know, as I said, because of that uh, support, he he got, uh, you know, he was a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize uh, in the early, I think in late 70s or close to 80s. So. so I think that was the uh, advantage uh, at that time. And I think, personally, I think it's now it's a little more tedious and difficult to kind of have that kind of a flexibility and, you know, and say, gee, I'd like to have some money to do some preliminary investigation that would lead lead us to, you know, maybe garner money from other resources like NIH and so on and so forth. Being part of the VA currently, one advantage is that actually you can apply for uh, funding from outside like, uh, like NIH and so on, in addition to what they have now, the merit review system, which is the primary means of funding research. So if you, you know, individuals who don't have, get, uh, don't succeed with merit review, they tend to, uh, tend to, you know, uh, lose their position. I mean, uh, non-medical non people lose, lose their job. And the medical people, those who are interested in research, unless they are extremely interested in research, they sort of lose interest because they feel that, well, you know, uh, if you struggle and have to put in so much time to 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 generate a, a, a merit review proposal, you know, it interferes with their clinical duties. And, uh, you know, they, they just feel that, you know, they don't have enough time. And many of the uh, people I know who are uh, at, at like, like some of my colleagues, I mean, they constantly complain that they have no free time for research. So they don't even bother anymore. So, you know, there there has been some of this kind of a situation that has developed. But I think uh, overall, the research programs are still moving, moving along pretty well. There's no, no doubt about it. So were you given a lot of latitude to research what you were interested in, or were there any restrictions on what you know you could or could not explore with your research? I think when I started, of course, I was told that you know there's absolute freedom as long as it relates to broadly to health issues or you know medical issue related issues, which uh, a lot of the biological research, you know, sometimes not immediately apparent, but it becomes uh, it becomes clear after a while that uh, you know it is important. Uh, in my case, for example, I uh, had started to work, as I said, I started to work on prostate cancer when I was at National Cancer Institute. Now there, of course, I had a tremendous flexibility with funding and what I was doing, and so I was able to develop a new direction. I in, I discovered a, a protein kinase signal. And at that time, uh, you know, not much was known about it. So I started that work and I continued with that work when I came to Minneapolis. And eventually 
identified that protein kinase. This is a kind of enzyme that phosphorylates proteins. And this kinase turned out, has turned out to be an absolutely uh, critical factor in um, in maintaining a, a cell cell function and uh, it and we we discovered also along the way that not only it was elevated in various cancers but also in it was elevated in prostate cancer but also every cancer that has been looked at this is elevated in and then we um, discovered also that uh, even though this kind of elevation reflected the increased proliferation of cancer cells. And the other important feature of this particular kinase, that's actually we call it CK2 now, is that it also blocks cell death. So it prevents cancer cells from dying. It not only promotes growth, but also, and more, even more importantly, it prevents their cell death. So and and that's that that was an absolutely novel discovery that we made uh, around 1990. So you can see that it took almost 20 years to reach that point. In the meantime, we were publishing papers and doing all kind of you know purification of the enzyme, its other characteristics, and so on. And then after we discovered that, we also uh, demonstrated that if you if you downregulate this enzyme by molecular means, you kill the cells. So we then proposed it as a target for cancer therapy. So we were sort of the first ones to propose it. And then, um, so we, we have been kind of working in that direction because you see the issue with this particular signal is that it is present in every cell in the body. It's so ubiquitous that it's not only present in, in humans, it's also present even in plants. So it was actually a lot of original work in Europe was done uh, on this enzyme isolated from maize, you know, with corn. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an extremely ubiquitous signal and the cells can't survive without it. So, and it's it's kind of an independent signal. It's not under the control of another signal. A lot of signals in the in the in the uh, in the cellular uh, biology are kind of interconnected with each other. And this side sits by itself and in on one side, and um, and it's supposed supposed to be uh, active all the time. But uh, it, but we also dis worked on that aspect. It actually may appear to be active all the time, but it actually uh, undergoes shuttling to various locations in the cell, and that shuttling is very important for uh, for its functional uh, biology. For example, in cancer cells, its concentration is much higher in the nuclear structures compared with the cytoplasmic structure, you know, outside the nucleus. And even though it's present outside the nucleus, for example, it, and there are about three or more than 300 substrates uh, or protein that can be phosphorylated by the enzyme. So it, it, it touches on a huge number of cellular functions. So our have focus has been mostly on the cancer-related uh, aspect and also kind of trying to achieve molecular targeting for its uh, for 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 you for its utility as a therapy sig uh, therapy target, 
And uh, we, we also kind of worked on um, a nanoparticle that we called a tenfibgen nanocapsule in which we uh, were, were able to encapsulate the, the uh, RNAi or the uh, anti-CK2 uh, uh, nucleotide. And, uh, you know, the idea about that this, this, uh, this nanocapsule had the, uh, appeared to have the ability to target only cancer cells and not the normal cells. So as a result, uh, you know, we were able to demonstrate uh, in uh, in early models of uh, of uh, cancer in uh, mouse mouse models that uh, it was effective in uh, in delivering the anti anti CK2 therapy to uh, cancer cancer cells. So we are kind of at that location. The thing is that uh, it, it's a little bit at a at a uh, uh, it's moving more slowly right now because the individual who developed that nanoparticle has been having need. need we are at a stage where you need millions of dollars to develop it further. So I think that's been a bit of a roadblock now. And uh, because uh, the um, the thing is that the um, a lot of the duck uh, companies and so on they don't uh, like the idea of having to develop an injectable. See, they they like the idea of a pill, and there is actually there there was one company that did develop a pill to target this uh, signal, and uh, that pill has uh, is sort of under investigation, and it, it, there are some clinical trials that are uh, NCI has about five listed clinical trials that are kind of investigating, you know, moving in that direction. Uh, the Personally, I feel that uh, it's it, a little more uh, tedious to use that approach because, as I said, you know, it's a, it's a signal that's present everywhere. So there is always um, an issue of the uh, uh, toxicity. One of the drug companies uh, from Switzerland once uh, uh, approached us, and they they were they had developed some signals, and they did develop a very potent signal, but they said, well, it had a lot of toxicity because I think it's uh, affected the normal cells as well. So that uh, that's where our work is at, at the current time. You know, we also uh, recently sort of discovered that um, when you inhibit, um, uh, when the current uh, cancer therapies that are mostly directed at the uh, androgen receptor targeted uh, locations, loci. So like, you know, drugs like anzalutamide, abiraterone, and so on and so forth. Those, those are kind of for the early early stage uh, uh, therapy agents to prevent progression or to, to treat progress, progressive prostate cancer, which is called the, often referred to as the uh, castration sensitive, uh, uh, castration resistant prostate cancer. Because initial, initially prostate cancer is cancer is castration sensitive. In other words, if you remove androgens, you, you kind of cause this regression, but then it returns, cancer returns. And then uh, the, the second line of therapies are these uh, enzalutamide, the, the receptor targeted uh, therapies. So what uh, we made some preliminary observation that when you, when those drugs also tend to elevate 
the CK2 signal in the nucleus. So in other words, that signal migrating into, uh, be, being elevated in the nucleus will actually block the action of those drugs. So could become a mechanism by which you develop uh, therapy resistance. And uh, so that that's the topic of my current uh, marriage review that started in January uh, this, this year. So, um, you know, we are hoping to kind of come up with some interesting uh, uh, new observation, which will then um, could, could have the potential of rapid translation because then you could maybe combine some of these therapies that are currently being used along with an inhibitor of the uh, of, of this uh, CK2 signal, and the the signal that, as I said, the the, the drug that is available and currently in clinical trials is the C called CX4945, or uh, uh, they have another name too, but uh, uh, <laughs> don't remember that name right now. So this is great because uh, my next. Uh question was was going to be about your goals and it, and it sounds like you've touched on a lot of that um so maybe you could just talk about how your goals have changed over the course of your career um you seem to touched a bit about it touched on it a little bit but maybe you could expound on that for us um well the goals kind of haven't really changed they kind of evolved as the research uh, developed so as i said you know that once we in 1992 discovered that this signal uh, is also not only promotes growth but also inhibits cell death. I mean that became a major, you know, impetus for us to to move in uh, a variety of you know directions. So we 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 have one one aspect, a basic science aspect of this project is to investigate the mechanism by which this signal blocks cell death. So we have, uh, you know, published several papers describing that. And so the thing is that, you know, somebody looking at that say, well, how does it affect patient? Well, like, you know, it's not a patient-related investigation, but it gives us the mechanism. And then if we know the mechanism, then we can perhaps look for other targets where, which, which can be then, uh, you know, approached for uh, therapy or at least understand how, how the uh, therapies are pro progressing as a, for example this uh, this observation that uh, the signal the ck2 signal is elevated in 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 uh, in, in in specimens that uh, are obtained from patients that had received uh, anzalutamide and so on well i mean that is uh, that is a sort of a serendipitous observation but it tells us uh, you know how we could utilize that to proceed further, and um, that being here at the VA, I mean, I have uh, I've been fortunate in having clinical collaborators who who are also interested in research. So I have one one uh, Dr. Mark uh, Klein, who's uh, a hematologist in the in the medicine service. He's he's doing a, a investigation. His own area is. Uh, squamous cell carcinoma, you know, mesothelioma and so on, lung cancer. But uh, he's also collaborating with me on prostate cancer because he does treatment of patients uh, dealing with uh, this kind of disease. Uh, 
So, you know, we've been, been instrumental in uh, procuring samples for us, human samples for us, because being a, 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 as a PhD, you have no real patient contact uh, and uh, it becomes quite uh, difficult to, uh, to, you know, do anything related to patient work. But some, the, the, that uh, availability of somebody like that is, is fantastic from that point of view. And the, the same way the head and neck cancer work, I, the, 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 uh, uh, the investigator, the, the physician who is the head of the otolaryngology of the VA, is uh, Amiro Cecido. I mean, he is also interested in research. So, he, you know, we, we interact with him if we are working on, uh, on a, 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 any issue relating to, to head and neck cancer. So, you know, we have kind of developed a, a project with him dealing with the treatment of oropharyngeal carcinoma, which is uh, comparing the HV, HPV uh, positive versus HPV negative cancer, because they respond differently to therapy. But uh, there, uh, our, uh, you know, again, there the issue is, uh, I don't have a direct funding for that. So I have to rely on whatever uh, the otolaryngology colleague can provide. Oft, sometimes uh, a resident who can do some, you know, who has a few months of lab work uh, experience, he wants to gain so we can kind of accommodate him. But, uh, you know, limitations are funding because he, he, he's, he is an example of a person who has zero time for sitting down and writing grants for uh, because he's a surgeon he starts at seven o'clock in the morning goes on till nine o'clock at night with one surgery so <laughs> so so it's um, i mean i admire the fact that he, he he does want to be active in research so we have you know weekly meetings and things like that yeah mostly by zoom now but um, yeah. It, it sort of works out and you know we kind of have we have just uh, published one paper together and then another one is uh, in the process of revision that will be uh, getting published soon dealing with our observation on the oropharyngeal carcinoma the, uh, hpv positive and negative all right dr Ahmed. so here we are in 2021 you've been with the va now for 50 years at this point can you kind of, from a higher level perspective, looking back through history, kind of compare um, VA from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s and, and through today? <laughs> well, as I said, my, um, I, you know, the research in every VA kind of varies upon the location of one of my uh, uh, VA uh, friend who we were on a committee in the central office and he was ASUS at another VA and he said well each VA is like a ship and they all and, and they all uh, you know operate depending upon the captain of that ship so the VA in Minneapolis uh, re, uh, the research got tremendous impetus very early on it was I think the second VA to be affiliated with the university and I think that's a critical feature of the VA that um, in my own observation, the VAs that are located on university campuses, they have a better research profile compared to the one that are set up, uh, you know, at a distance. We we are about six miles away. Actually, we were supposed to move to the campus, but then at the last minute, they 
decided to stay where 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 it was originally. The new building got didn't get built at the, near the university, but but at the original place. So I think that's been one of the one of the aspects that make the difference. But I think um, um, I over the last uh, uh, I know 20, 20 odd years now, I think the funding level has been dropping considerably. I mean, the fund funds look okay, but the, you know the number of people getting the funds is, has been dropping. So, so the for example, the bench research uh, activity at where where I am uh, is greatly reduced compared to what it was, let's say, in the 70s, 80s, not 70s, but 80s. We moved in this building in 1988. That's a new building. So, I think. Um, the potential is still there. There are some center uh, centers at various uh, locations, like Minneapolis has uh, two centers: one on one dealing with the brain brain sciences, and the other dealing with the um, uh, patient outcome and uh, uh, drug develop drug delivery system. I think so. Those centers are uh, doing fantastically well at at, at this location, and uh, then uh, that's I think the. The VAs, for example, um, in San Francisco has a, a pretty pretty strong research uh, profile that I personally know of, and uh, you know, so there there are uh, people at uh, at the various levels. But I think the uh, the the um, complete reliance on the merit uh, review. Kind of makes it a little hard for a continuously, continuously progressing uh, uh, research program because I, all the uh, all the major the Nobel Prize work that I mentioned that was in the days when it was kind of free, you know, more much more freedom in 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 uh, in funding, getting funds, and then also you know moving forward with what you wanted to do. And because uh, I don't know if today somebody, uh, you know, we asked or say, look, I need uh, a huge amount of money to work. I want to purify this molecule because I think it's the hormone that is uh, going to be a very important hormone. I mean, I'm not sure if uh, the funds will be available. So if we can uh, switch gears a little bit and uh, and have you tell us a bit about the relationships you have with your veteran patients. Well, I personally have no contact with the patients you see, because uh, being a PhD, I have no direct contact with the patients. So that's where if we, you know, the only uh, contact uh, would be, you know, if you're seeing the patients and then you want to recruit them, like for the head and neck cancer and for the prostate uh, cancer research, we 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 are, uh, recru you know, looking at patients which were in prospectively, like the who had gone through, and we have record of, you know, uh, their 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 patient care record is there, how they did, and we have specimens and all of that. But even to access that, the um, I rely on my uh, clinical colleagues. So those those are my coworkers, so like, and uh, so that that's I think that's that's sort of the but. I have no personal contact with any patient. Well, that's interesting. So, uh, yeah, that's I, I didn't realize that, but that that makes sense. Yeah, um, but the, us... that's why the the 
the concept was that you know it would be an environment where the clinical people interested in research will collaborate with the basic science people who are much more maybe knowledgeable in terms of basic research activities or know how to do the experiments and so on or direct the experiments so you know when a whole lot of clinical investigators used to constantly come over you know to my lab or to meet with me and ask me you know how, how should we do this or how should we do that and you know we often you know advise them okay you can do this technique that technique if your your person wants to learn the technique send them to my lab and we show them how to do it and all that sort of thing so a lot of the guys uh, kind of you know a lot of the clinical people sort of benefited immensely from that but uh, right now it's um, it's much uh, the activity is significantly less so the more more direction i think uh, towards clinical research which uh, maybe doesn't require that much bench research. So could you tell us about, um, I had two questions on here. The first was tell us about some of your challenges, but I, I, we're going to ignore that one. I want to switch to the, the other one, which is, could you tell us about some of your successes? Because as I'm hearing you talk, that seems to be the question I care about more is, is, is where, where are the successes that, that you've seen over your time there? Well, I think in the basket, I feel very, uh, very, uh, uh, almost say proud of the fact that we have made some really major discoveries uh, in 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 the area that in which i work i mean i uh, i'm uh, part of the um, international uh, committee that organizes meetings on this subject on this signal protein kind of secret too i was the first one to hold a meeting on that uh, in in uh, in the early uh, 90s uh, and so I think the, in terms of the work, uh, we have been very fortunate. I had, um, I have, uh, I had a, an NIH grant for 38 years, and I've been uh, consistently funded through the BLRD program, the VA Research uh, Merit Award program. So with the combined level of funding, I was able to carry on uh, a lot of work and uh, you know it was also we were able to have a lot of uh, uh, investigators come come to the lab from abroad and locally now that's an area where it's become quite difficult to to have people coming from abroad and, and even those for example uh, you know people coming from abroad they say okay well they have they have they can't start to work until they get a social security number and so on and so forth so when I mean, that takes one to two months, two months almost. So if somebody's coming for six months, you know, one or two months have gone, gone out of that because you are just waiting around. And so we try to kind of occupy them one way or another. Uh, same way I used to have a lot of even high school students you'd want to come and work, but now it's very difficult to uh, have them uh, come come and join join the lab because of all the restrictions that are there. I mean, some of them have valid basis, but it of course does affect that. So I've, I've now refused any high school student who wants to come and and uh, you know gain experience in the lab. They all say they're very interested and blah blah blah. So. Uh, so I think the, in terms of the uh, research progress, uh, it's been. Uh, uh, very successful for me personally. 
and um, I, as I say, as you see, I, I have, uh, I, I'm always uh, mentioned as an example of somebody who's been able to carry on with the program for 50 years. <laughs> so, so, but it uh, means also that you have to put in a lot of hard work. So, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, wonder, sometimes wonder if I ever go home. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Well, Dr. Ahmed, it has just been such a pleasure to hear about your amazing career and just thank you for all of the research and advances you have made in this field. Just kind of one final question here for you. And what does it mean to you to be a part of this long tradition of research at the VA and to have been witness to some of this history? Well, I think this is a, the VA is a is a fantastic environment for doing research because you, as I say, if you have clinical colleagues, right, uh, you know, basically on the same floor with you that you can interact with. So if you are lucky and you are in a situation where you have some colleagues who are interested in research, and even though they're not doing it, uh, being clinical people, they're not doing it on hand, but they're interacting with you. So it can it can be a, a very productive, uh, uh, you know, interaction and can lead you to, you know, directions. For example, in my case, thinking about therapy development and all of that, uh, probably, you know, was stimulated by interaction with the clinical uh, colleagues and so on and so forth. Because um, I basically was interested in developing the fundamental mechanisms, the, how the signal works and so on and so forth, which I still do. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, in the back of my mind is also this constant uh, concern about utilizing this, all this information for uh, patient care, and uh, so that's that's uh, an area where you know we are keeping a close eye on, and and are greatly helped by uh, the clinical colleagues. So well, we won't take it too much more of your time, but uh, thank you again. Well, thank you very much for uh, the pleasure uh, chatting with you. That was Dr. Khalil Ahmed. Next week, we have on our season two finale, we are going to be looking at cardiology. And Sean, I've got a question for you. Okay. You can think about. Got it. This is a quiz, right? This is trivia. This is a quiz. When was the first cardiology lab established at a VA medical center and where? Okay. I, I will not Google it. Don't Google it. All right. Come come back next time to find out the answer. Got it. All right. Deal. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Whoa.